Abby. And I'm Allie. And it's About, about time, time for True Crime. Hey. Hey. <laughs> How are you guys doing today? Happy Tuesday. Happy freaking Tuesday. I am so happy that we are back to our normal recording schedule. Oh this my God. This is so nice. Even though you guys didn't feel it again, like we were literally playing like tradesies, tag year it with being sick. And so the yeah. recording schedule is like Crazy. completely all over the place. But now we are back to it. I'm in, if I may brag, yeah. um, a matching little loungewear set. I love it. Which is the first of its kind. Is it really? To me. Yes. I don't have anything that like matches like this. That's I like. I think it's so cute. Comfy. So when I wear my fat pants when we record, I can feel a little bit like, oh no, this was intentional. No, like. like fat see, pants chic. These two like go together. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you yeah, see? Yeah. So it's not actually wearing yeah. my pajamas. Duh. I mean, obviously. I didn't think I'd have to point it out to you. I love it. Well, thank you very much. My soon to be sister-in-law actually just messaged all of her bridesmaids on Facebook and was like, so we're doing pajama sets. Yeah. And I was like, I love pajamas. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. She's so cute. Well, if she needs a brand, I can send her this link because these are super do it comfy and like flowy and they are and it's a good color it's like a nice little like sage eucalyptus green for those of you who can't see what i'm seeing which is all of you um, um yes i'm a slut for a good sage or forest green i love green i had to grow into green but i love green you know what the worst green is that like mustardy yellowy green oh really like that mossy i think it's oh i i don't know i like moss i don't <laughs> I don't like the Celtic green, which is rich because I'm Irish, but I, I feel like it's so in your face and there are so many prettier shades. I like a deeper or a tamed down. Yeah, I wanted a little muted. Give me a little a little gray. Add a little purple in that bad boy, you know? Yeah, not that they asked at all, but you guys were just we're just hanging out. Anyways, now I'm talking color theory. Sorry about that. But I have to say, I wanted to ask you guys this because we've done a few polls on our Instagram page, but I figured not everyone has Instagram and I don't want to leave anybody out. Heck yeah. But I want to hear from our listeners. What do you guys like to hear in terms of like episodes, right? Do you like a series where it's like two or three episodes? Do you like a one-off? Because if you're like me... Each thing has sort of a time and a place. Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm listening to every single episode of a podcast when it comes out and there's like a part one of a series, I'm like, oh, I just want to wait till they're all out and then binge them. Yeah. But if like I also like to listen to one off episodes because to me, I do listen to music. That's usually when other people in the car with me. But when I'm on my drive to work or going on other like longer drives where I'm by myself, it's podcast time. Oh, yeah. And... I prefer to have longer episodes. I like to just download a whole series. I like the banter of like being in my car Mm. and feeling like I'm hanging out. That's why I tend to like more relaxed fit type episodes of like podcasts because if I want something super serious, I'll listen to a book on tape. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I just sort of feel like a podcast. I want to be a little bit more relaxed. I want to feel like I'm hanging out with my friends. I want to learn about a lot of cool stuff and talk about my favorite subject which happens to be what we do every week (laughs) but I just I don't know if am I alone in that I just want to hear and for those of you who are tuning in on Spotify I'll see if I can do it on Apple as well but Spotify I have turned on a Q&A for every single episode so when you're listening to it you should be able to just scroll down 
um, and see like, what did you think about this episode? You can put your thoughts there. I also have polls on a few of them, but those are timed. So you may or may not be able to get in depending on how quick you're listening. True. But I would definitely check that out. So like last week's Katie Autry's, hers had a poll on it. And all of them, I think honestly, since Nexium have had the what did you think about this? So there is places for you to comment if you're not on Instagram. I don't want anybody to be left out. And you can always email, which we all unfortunately have email. (laughs) I know it's so stupid, but, but we like emails from you guys. It's, uh, it's the other things emails like the people you. that want money from you and stuff. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones we don't want to hear. But you guys yeah. aren't asking for that. So we're all set. Yeah. Wow. What what a week. What a week. This week we have done some cool things. We are starting some cool things. Oh, we have lots to update you. You guys are going to have to stay tuned for a few weeks, but we have some exciting things coming your way. Big old plans in the works. Um, Maybe wearable plans. I don't know. Sippable plans. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But plans for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just nice. It's nice to grow with our little pod pod fam. Yeah, we just love you guys. And I'm, I'm so excited to hear what you have for me because you've given me like the barest bones basically just said... I don't know it. And it's from a long time ago. Yes. um, Both of those are true. So anybody who's skipping, hey, it's time. I'm I'm talking. We're ringing the little dinner bell. Soup's on. And by (laughs) soup's on, I mean murder's about to be told. So (laughs) (laughs) the pod's on. Um, So to take a little, I don't know, page out of Allie's book here, I'll just give you some of my resources. The thing that got me into this some of my sources. So the documentary that actually got me into this the most I saw on HBO. It's called The Murders at Starved Rock. I also watched a YouTube series on this from a woman who's named Dan- Danelle Hallen. I and like it was that. quite good. She actually did a multi-part on it. So she goes way in depth, but very nice. Very good to see. And of course, I'm using all sorts of, you know, documents, newspapers, I actually found a bunch of the original newspaper clippings, which was super cool. I love when that happens. It's just nice to be able to, like, get in on it. So, howdy, hey, hey, you party people. (laughs) Welcome back to another episode of your favorite true crime podcast. Shucks. You guys shouldn't have. Well, I have been feeling a little bit mm, down in the dumps. I had COVID. I was stuck at home. And I was just like, you know what? I need to travel. Oh, I really needed to travel. And so need to get out of the house. You know, I was like, you know where I want to travel. I want to go home. So we're going to Illinois. Okay. Yeah. I've never been to the Midwest. Well, welcome. Welcome, hon. How y'all doing? Oh, (laughs) Oh, sorry about that. He's a funny looking fella. (laughs) Oh, don't you know? Oh, don't you know? So. (laughs) Oh, that's so natural to you. Oh, yeah. We're traveling back in time as well. Oh my god! Sixty-three lo- years time travel? to nineteen sixty. You can just call me Doc. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to Starved Rock. It's a national park in my home state of Illinois. Starved Rock is on the Illinois River in LaSalle County, which gets its name allegedly from the legend of two native or indigenous tribes: one at the top of the rock, one at the bottom. And the one at the bottom starved out the one at the top. Oh, no. Starved rock. How realistic that is, I don't know. I have not checked any native history books on this, but Ouch. that's the uh, the legend, you know? All right. 
So today I'm going over the murder of three middle-aged women in the 60s. Hmm. Here's what's interesting. I watched at least three hours of documentary on these murders, up to maybe like five, and I did not hear almost a single fucking thing about the actual victims. Wow. This case is so nutty. It's like they just forgot that there were three whole ass people that were murdered. (laughs) Oh, that's awful. And I mean, it's not like they forgot, but they weren't. They weren't the focus. They weren't of it. the focus. And anymore. shouldn't they always be? They should always be. The f- if you're taking away someone else's life, uh, I don't want to spend the rest of your life talking about you. You took three other ones away. I'd rather talk about them. And now I think this could have been solved a lot easier if we had done any <clears throat> victimology in this case, which we touched briefly on in the Gypsy Rose case. But basically, like, why them? Why these three middle-aged women at Starved Rock in March, you know? Yeah, why? So it's something I wanted to talk a little bit about because I think it would have helped a lot. Now, I want to make it known that I'll share what I can about the victims, but because it happened so long ago and because the only surviving family members of these, you know, family lines didn't really get a chance to know these women... And also, because we are now in an age of technology, it's it's pretty hard to find stuff. So I'll give you what I know. But that's not going to it's nowhere near as much as I wish I knew. You know, I get that. Not just there's nothing available. Yes. So. I'll do my best to note what changes have already been made, because as we'll see, this case is in the 1960s. So it comes out. Right off of that 1950s policing where it's like very hardened policing and there's just a lot that has changed since then. So I'll try. I'll try my best to keep you updated on what is no longer okay to do that did happen here Mm -hmm. (laughs) and what was, you know, kosher and good. But imagine with me, we're in March of 1960. All right. Three middle-aged women decided to go to Starved Rock for like a winter vacation. Oh, they're all together. They're all friends. This wasn't over a period of time. Nope. These are three women. They are active in their community. They all have kids. Most of them are like older and grown, you know. And they're camping, you said? Uh, They're just hiking. So Starved Rock has like a hotel lodge at it that people can stay at. Oh, that's that's cool. They have like a little room. Oh, this gives me like Gitchy Manitou murders that we covered, Mm -hmm. I think, last year. Yeah. It gets... Alone in the woods. Spooky. But... These women, they're so nice. They're just like normal Midwest galleys. I look at their face and I see their big cheeks and I'm like, oh, I want to try your seven layer salad that has mayo as one of its layers. Let oh. me in. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they liked, I I believe one of them was really into gardening. All of them were heavily involved in the school boards that their kids were at. They went to, I think they all actually went to the same Presbyterian church, which represent i grew up presbyterian but like just really sweet ladies you know and they've been busy they've had shit to do they had duties at home they had duties with their kids i'm gonna laugh because i keep saying duty (laughs) but you know they just wanted a little vacay so they were like all right we'll wait for the end of winter we'll get a little stir crazy and then we'll go we'll go to starved rock and we'll just yeah, like a little girls weekend that's exactly what you and i would do exactly go for like a little walk do a little birding take some photos like just you know cute relax play some cards read so our three women this is gonna hurt really bad isn't it yeah okay our three women francis murphy Mildred Lindquist and Lillian Oding. I love all of their names. 
were in succession 47 years old, 50 years old, and 50 years old. Okay. So, you know. Yeah, they're all the same age. Yeah, they're hanging out there in the same stage of life. And for those of you wondering, they did make their little quest out to Starved Rock on March 14th of 1960. And Starved Rock is beautiful. It's about two hours west and a little bit south of Chicago, if you have any geography knowledge, which I have nearly none. (laughs) And about an hour and a half from my hometown, in case you were wondering. And yes, I did have to use Google Maps for that. Um, (laughs) I do think, though, that a friend of mine and I went back in high school and it was really pretty. It's oh, like, so you've been there. That's yeah. sweet and terrifying. It is. And it's huge. It's like 2,600 miles big. And it is probably the only place in Illinois that has any elevation. My God. Um, granted, I think it's all from rocks. But, you know, I'll take yep. it where I can get it. But it is beautiful. It is big. There are waterfalls. Technically, I think that the rocks are sandstone canyons. Mm -hmm. So it's just really beautiful. There's like lots of caves, all kinds of things. So the other thing that drew these women to Starved Rock for this trip is that in winter, one of the appeals of Starved Rock is that some of the waterfalls that are there freeze. And so they're frozen waterfalls and it's beautiful. Oh, that's so cool. And they're on like this little St. Louis trail, um, which I believe the women actually were on. So I assume that was part of the appeal for them at least. Oh, I hope they at least got to see something nice before all this awful shit happened. You and me both. Oh, but come Wednesday, March 16th of 1960, three days after the woman got there and three days into their four day trip, they were supposed to leave on Thursday. Uh, one of their husbands called and they were like, listen, um, I don't want to be like a worry wart, but we haven't heard from our wives and it's the 60s. So really, the only way to get in contact quick to be like, hey, I made it safe. Hey, we're here. Like, here's what I did today. Just never happened. And like, yeah, maybe a day or two, you can be like, okay, they're probably excited and like doing all these things and, you know, who knows. But come Wednesday, I think it was Lillian's husband who was like, this ain't right. What's going on? So another concern of another concern of his was that the night previous there was, you guessed it, a huge snowstorm because it's March in Chicago. And so, windy, potentially? <laughs> almost certainly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was interesting. So Lillian's husband, I believe it was Lillian's husband, called and was like, I'm concerned. Go check the room, please. Like, just knock on the door. And it was immediately concerning when the, I believe it was the custodian, knocked on the door. Nobody answered. He opened the door. And it was apparent that none of the bags had been opened. All of the beds were not slept in. They were all made. And he went out to check the car that they drove in, which was Francis's car, and it was covered in snow. So it hadn't been moved since the snowstorm. Oh, no. They were nowhere to be found. So it was like the day they got there. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody found out for another two days. And the husbands were probably wondering that first day, like, oh, I hope they're having a good time, you know? Oh, I'll hear from them later. And then... To just be like, oh, I haven't heard, but, you know, it's probably okay. And then to just get to the point where it's like, okay, this isn't okay. And then to find out that that first day you didn't hear something. Yeah. Something was wrong. Yeah. Terrifying. So 
obviously, then people started to search the park. Like I said, it's 2,600 miles. It's big. So it took a little bit of time, but it was that same day that they did find the three women's bodies pulled up into one of the caves on the St. Louis Trail. Oh, God. Trigger warning, this is a little graphic, but these women weren't just murdered. They were bludgeoned to death. Oh, my God. Nearly to the point of decapitation, which is insane. Like, that is just sheer destruction to be bludgeoned almost to decapitation. Not to mention, they were staged, and it certainly looked like a rape upon first arrival. There were ripped clothes. Their legs were all spread. Two of them, I believe, were naked from the waist down, but one of them had a girdle on. Okay. And that's just where we're starting. We're, what are we, 15 minutes in? For Christ's sakes, Abby. I know. I'm sorry. I didn't do it. <laughs> I'm just trying to show you how insane this is. This is where we're starting. And that's pretty much all the information I have on these women. And you feel like you're safe. Mm-hmm. You go out. You're not alone. You have three of you with you. Your husbands know where you are. There's a lodge. There's people. It's daytime. If you go out with one other person, you're like, okay, no one, like, we yeah. should be fine. You go out with two other people, you're like, I'm, I feel pretty unstoppable. This yeah. Can, you know, we can take them, you know? Yes. That's and just so terrifying. It's just, it's all strange. There's so many things here that just don't make sense. So we'll get into a little bit. First... These were three women that were middle-aged. I mean, no disrespect or anything negative by saying this, but just statistically speaking, three middle-aged women are not typically the common target for rape. No. You're more likely to be victimized between 18 and 24 than you are Mm -hmm. any other time in your life. It's so true. Married people tend to have an even less victimization rate. Same Mm -hmm. with people that are like well-established in their community, which all three of these women were. So we're kind of like, what in the hell is happening? Maybe a robbery, maybe like coercion of some kind for a bigger group. That might be normal. But like three women to be raped and then brutally bludgeoned to death. How do you do that? Why? Like, I don't know. It just makes no sense. Second of all, these women were all married to, you know, not like public figures, but seemingly prominent men, which is also kind of confusing because they were so far away. It's not like anybody in this area is going to say like, oh, Frances Murphy, I know her husband. Right. You know, like it was enough of a trip that it was a vacation for them. But it was still, they still were from Illinois. Yes. I believe they were from Utica. Okay. But specifically, like I know Frances Murphy, her husband was pretty well known around the area and Mildred and Lillian were in a similar social circle. So that tells me to that they probably have the same kind of quality of life. And lastly, again, the clothing was strange. The fact that it looked like a rape, but only two of them were nude from the waist down. It's just a lot. There's a lot happening. Mm -hmm. And also, I did find the woman's husband's profession. So again, they all had grown children, but Frances Murphy was married to a vice president of Borg Warner Corp., which was a pretty big company at the time Mildred was married to Robert Lindquist who was a VP for Harris Savings Bank which I don't know if we have Harris out here but they're big in the Midwest I Um, haven't heard of it they have like a little lion logo 
it's cute. Anyway, and then Lillian was married to George Oding, who was a supervisor at a at the Bell Telephone Company. So like, oh my, y- you know, he wasn't a Rockefeller by any means. Like none of them were Rockefellers, but they weren't wanting for much, it seems. Right. So the initial investigation is where things get nutty already. <laughs> First of all, this investigation is so stupid. It's so dumb. It's like one of the worst investigations I've ever seen in my life. Awesome. Um, first, let's talk about what was found at the crime. Let's do it. Like at the scene. There were broken binoculars. Oh, okay. There was a camera. Oh. There was twine used to tie up the woman. Oh, okay. There was a big fat tree limb that was covered in all the snow, but a big fat tree limb. Uh, what they did not find anywhere around was sperm. Huh. Zero sperm. Was that because they didn't look for it? Uh, no, I believe they looked for it. Okay. But it was not in, on, or near any of the three women. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the two detectives and investigators on this case were Wayne Hess and Bill Dummett. And we'll talk a lot about them. But this is where they first start coming in. The other thing worth noting here is that there was a photo of the three of these women, Mildred, Francis, and Lillian, and they were at the root beer shack. So the root beer shack was like maybe a mile uh, down one of the paths from the lodge. Just taking pictures with your girls. Yeah. Just getting a little root beer before you go birding. Oh, if that, like, you know, if that were a relative, you'd just be like, oh my God, yeah, go do it. Go have fun. Please take a few days. Don't worry. I'm begging you. Go get root beer with your girlies and look at a tufted titmouse or something have a glass of wine you never do it you know what i mean just have a night Ugh. so the three of them are at the little root beer shack and then i want to go to the root beer shack also comes out that one of our girlies had a bad back she had a slipped disc it wasn't that great so if you remember this is a big place it's 2600 miles and it's a long hike from the lodge down to where these women were But it was a significantly shorter hike if they got in from the west entrance. So kind of immediately the theory that happens is, okay, so they probably hitched a ride to the west entrance. So it would be a shorter walk for the one with the bad back. Um, And, you know, obviously Frances's car was exactly where it was. So it's not like she drove them there. Right. But wouldn't if you've got your car, wouldn't you drive yourself there? You'd think. But also maybe you're hanging out with a couple of people at a root beer shack and you're like, oh, I was kind of wondering where I want to go birding. And they're like, oh, I'm on my way out. I can drop you at the west entrance. Oh, no. I don't know. Plus, it was the 60s. I feel like people were more trusting then. But what do I know? No, that's true. Further, the state's attorney general at the time, Harland Warren, said that he was convinced that more than one person did this. I think that makes sense. He said, how in the hell would one person get three women up into a cave and subdue them long enough to do all of this to all of them. There, yeah, there's no way. And also, so did the state police chief at the time. Both of them made this comment in the news article that came out the next day, March 17th, 1960. Mm. So now we start looking at suspects. We got to know what's going on here. First, everyone who worked at Starved Rock Lodge, everyone who worked at Starved Rock Lodge was a suspect. Just absolutely. Everybody's there. Of course. Everybody knows the area. You're there all the time. Right. Uh, Including George Spiros, who was the owner, and every maid, every staff member, and our main suspect, a dishwasher named Chester Weger. 
So there was an incredibly important event that led up to the discovery of these three women. And I think it's important to note here. Sue Okapek, a former teacher, had a teenager report a rape in Matheson State Park, which is like a 10-minute drive down the street from Starved Rock. Okay. The student said that she was on a path and a guy with a rifle came out, told her to tie her boyfriend's hand up. He took his wallet and then he raped her and made him watch. Oh, my God. She said the whole time that he was doing it, he was rolling a bullet around in his mouth. She did report it, but her story wasn't believed by Wayne Hess and Bill Dummett. So this was just a few months prior to these murders, and this was in late 1959. Okay. Oh, my stomach hurts already. As initially, all of the lodge employees were suspects. Dummett and Hess put together like a polygraph and basically just had every single employee go through. Mm -hmm. You know, most of them did not last any longer than 15 minutes. Hey, what were you doing? Were you on the schedule? What was your alibi? What Mm -hmm. do you know? However, Chester Weger, our 21-year-old father with an infant baby boy and a three-year-old daughter at home, came in. He was a dishwasher in the kitchen, and he was the only employee to have a polygraph over 15 minutes long. Ooh. I believe it was actually about an hour. Oh, okay. So significantly longer. In fact, it was stated in one of the documentaries I saw that the polygraph technician came out white as a ghost. Convinced Chester had done it. Uh. Earlier that week on Tuesday, Chester's coworker, so Tuesday... The day after the woman arrived, Mm -hmm. and we now know the day that they were murdered, he came in with scratches all over the side of his face. When he was finally investigated and that polygraph happened and it took so long, the investigators thought that they had a slam dunk. They were like, okay, easy. Like, all right, no one else is in on it. You are obviously guilty. Mm -hmm. This guy's shaking in his boots and he talks to people all day fucking long. Mm -hmm. So like... They were pretty, pretty fucking confident. Further, one of the two investigators realized that the twine used to tie up the woman's hands had 32 strands. And it's it's weird, but they were like, you know, we just don't have any evidence. So what do we have? Like, what do we have? Right. And he just went back and he was like, all right, I guess I'll start looking at the rope, see if we can match it. Counted out 32 strands. After the polygraph with Chester, he was in the kitchen And the investigator found two different kinds of cords, one 20 strand and one 12 strand, respectively. Okay. So he goes back to the evidence and he realized that the twine that was used was actually two different kinds. A 20 and a 12. A 20 and a 12, which if you combine are 32. And they found out. That's just math. This math is mathin'. This math is mathin'. This math is mathin' good. So not only that, though, Chester admitted to carrying it with him frequently. You said I'd like to play like, you know, the string games with your hands, like cat in the cradle and all that good stuff. I mean, stuff. I guess when you don't have fucking Candy Crush or whatever, yeah. the fuck, <laughs> then that's what you would do. But I got to say, I would think that there would be more to do than just that. Yeah. And he also says that he would use it for like, quote unquote, catching game. Always got that thing on me. Mm-hmm. I always got that rope on me. Like, come on, dude. So... Another thing that was interesting that added to the case against Chester was that he was called Rocky by a lot of people. 
I think it was just a nickname. I don't think it had anything to do with Rocky Balboa. Might have, but I doubt it. Sure, shit better than Chester. Yeah, it is, right? And he actually got a tattoo of Rocky on his shoulder. Like, it was just the name Rocky, but he had a tattoo of it. And this was pertinent because in the cave that the women were found, they also found Rocky carved into the walls. Oh. So all signs pointed to Chester. You Rocky know. was here. Yeah. <laughs> W-U-Z. <laughs> yeah. No. I so, mean, granted, that could have been old. Right. Exactly. We don't know. But that was, you know, certainly a coincidence, if nothing else. Literally you know signed I mean? his name. Wow. So Chester was described by classmates and by coworkers as being quiet. He'd climb trees during lunchtime. He'd make noises at other people, at least in school. He was reclusive, a loner. He was called creepy by a few people and just said not to talk too much. Like he was quiet, kept to himself. Hmm. Chester, through the rumor mill, allegedly raped his wife. Chester also had a juvenile record of statutory rape. And this was all used to gain evidence that he could do it. He had the capacity. Now, remember that high school teacher and the student that was raped? I do. So when these murders happened and were released to the public, Sue said the teenager and her just like hugged and cried because they were like, this has to be the same guy. Oh, like maybe we'll get him. And so this teacher believed the student. Oh, yeah. So Dummett and Hess finally fucking circle back around. They get their shit together and they bring up a lineup for the girl's boyfriend to like say that was the guy. They bring in four or five people, including Chester, and he identifies Chester as the guy. And when they got him, they being Dummett and Hess, they said, Chester, you might as well just admit to the rape and robbery because we have you on this. So you might as well, you know, admit to the ones that starved Rock, too. So Chester gets taken in for a 36 hour interrogation. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. Chester did get to see his mom. I don't know if she was just like his one call or if she came to the station or something. And when he got a hug from her and she left, she just said, Chester, tell him the truth. And immediately after she left, he confessed. It's interesting that it's his mom that comes over, not his wife. Yeah. Yep. I do find that interesting. Also, something kind of funny if you're into a long documentary sit. In the HBO documentary, there was this really funny snippet of like a guy singing a blues song that had this in it. A blues song on the acoustic guitar. And oh, he was geez. like, oh, wait, I forgot the words. <laughs> oh, my God. So Chester woke up the morning after his confession. Investigators asked if he would show him what he did. And Chester was genuinely put on a metal leash. And he was explained to dozens of reporters and police how he did it. They went to the crime scene. He walked it all through. Chester said he was able to tie them up with the promise of letting them go. Uh, Basically, he said he just wanted to rob them. And as he left, one of the women got up and started beating him with their binoculars, which like, yes, queen. Then (laughs) Chester said he picked up a frozen tree branch and bludgeoned her to death. Only to go back to the other two and do the same to prevent identification. But within 24 hours of his confession, he recanted it. He said, nope, never mind. Not me. Didn't do it. Did I say that? I misspoke. 
Then they were trying to push him to sign the confession. So for those of you who don't know, if there's a confession, you sign every page. If you're saying, yep, I did it. This is true. Right. And Chester said he didn't want to, but they kept pushing it on him. And he said, fine, I'll sign it and I'll prove myself innocent in court. Mm. Now, for those of you counting, 63 years later, he is still in prison. So I don't think that went to plan. I don't, don't think so. So when the heck happened? I want to break this down into three different sections. First, I want to talk about what happened. Second, I want to talk about the argument for Chester. And third, the argument against Chester. So what happened in this case? In 1960, per the usual, of course, it wasn't like heard in court until 1961, right? Mm-hmm. The attorney and the attorney's assistant were new because 1960 was an election year. All right. So this adds a whole lot of things into a, a whole bunch of shit. I don't know. It gets so messy because of the politics. So the attorney and the attorney assistants were entirely new and like in their mid-20s. Uh, neither of them had ever heard a criminal case. And both of them were fresh out of school. And by fresh out of school, I mean... The attorney was 26 and his assistant was 24. Like young guys. Wow. It should also be noted here, of course, that it was the election year. So Harland Warren, who was the state's attorney that arrested Chester in November of 1960, he lost the election and he didn't get to try Chester. He just was responsible for helping arrest him. And ultimately, that is how we get to Anthony Recuglia, who is the prosecutor on the case and we'll get to him more later but just remember harlan warren set the whole damn case up anthony recuglia is the one who presented it and spiked it down okay so a little tangent but this case is all in the external details it was political it was the election year warren was not going to leave office without at least starting to solve that case because he was like i'm gonna be the one to do it and hopefully if i do it then i'll get reelected. of course that didn't happen but he is technically the one who started this. So by arresting Chester in November, he still got the notoriety of the guy who solved the case. True. When Harlan Warren died in 2006, his office was filled with all sorts of evidence, including a paper that he drew up of how to break Chester. Ooh. Yep. It started with how to prove, how to put Chester into rest long enough to get a confession out of him. And there just simply wasn't enough evidence to do it on its own. So he knew he'd have to strong arm him. Okay. And that's what we find 2006, 40 years later. Yeah, way too late. Right. But we're going to back up. And before they get to the trial in 1961, a lot happened. Here's what we know happened. During that talk where Chester told everyone how he did it and like what he did, there was a piece of information that he gave up that was huge. It was about a plane because originally he was like, yeah, I just wanted to rob the woman. But then he saw a red and white airplane flying overhead and tried to hide the woman in the cave to prevent recognition or alarm from above. He was like, I don't want this pilot to see that I'm doing some shady shit. So I'm going to bring him up into the cave. Okay. What's interesting is that it was confirmed that there was a red and white plane flying above head on mm. March 14th, 1960 afternoon. So okay. like confirmed that that plane was there. Chester also was given a significant amount of polygraphs. Of course, we had that long one at the beginning, but he failed a lot of them. 
And after the 36 hours of questioning without sleep, he signed every page of his confession. I think it's also important to know that when we talk about that lineup with the other rapists from the Matheson Park rape, Mm -hmm. Chester was 21 and put in a lineup with four to five other men that were significantly older and all of which were serving time in the county jail. Okay, so they probably came in in orange and obviously didn't look like it. And obviously didn't look like a young man who did this thing. And Chester was the only young man there. One of the things that really frustrates me that's really important to like point out in these lineups Mm -hmm. is that when you tell somebody, look at these six people and pick one, your brain is going to pick the one that looks the most like that not necessarily the person so what they've started doing now is giving them like an ipad or they have the the pictures printed but you know like yeah. some kind of tablet where it's it's um digital you know whatever yeah. and they just they make like a folder of them and they just say take a look at these pictures swipe through them all they're not it's not six headshots or mug mm-hmm. shots all in a row it says what looks it's look at each one and move on from that one when you're ready to Right. And tell me if any of these stand out so that you're not comparing them to each other. Right. You're just comparing it to your memory. And if you give somebody a a photo of somebody and say, does this look like the guy? The more you ask and the more you put that in their face, the more they're going to actually believe that it does. Yeah. You're going to draw those parallels. You're going to say, does this look like the guy? Well, not initially, but I guess his eyebrows do look like him. I guess his ears kind of looked that weird. And of the other five, this guy looks the most like it. So it must be him. And I I don't know. I just personally have a really big problem, A, with putting in a lineup of all incarcerated people and one free man. And also, like, even if they gave them different clothes. It makes no sense. These men were not around. They could not have done it. So really what you're asking is, did this one guy do it? Because you know that the other ones didn't. Yeah, you're looking at them saying they they were all incarcerated. Here's this one guy in je- yeah. <laughs> jeans and a flannel. Yeah, I'm going to say it's him of anybody. Right. And the only one that was relatively young, which is the Ugh. one thing that they talked about. So I'm like, stop, stop, <laughs> do it well. Ugh. So first, I think we should know who we're playing with. Um, who are the players in this case? What's going on? Yeah, who? The detectives, like we talked about. Um, the HBO documentary I watched, The Murders at Starved Rock, actually goes really in depth into the players in the case, which I loved. Because it was done by David Recuglia, who is the son of Anthony Recuglia, the prosecutor. Which is sick. So it's really fun to watch them talk through things, obviously, because Dave is interested in it. I call him Dave or David. But Anthony is the prosecutor. So he was on the fucking case. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool to watch him go at it. And Anthony Recuglia called Dummett and Hess the detectives essentially sketchy as hell bill dummett had a reputation and anthony recuglia said everybody called him quote unquote dustpan dummett meaning he was the guy that police brought in to clean up messes okay prosecutor recuglia says that dummett is sketchy as hell obviously but dummett wouldn't turn over evidence till the last second he always seemed to find quote unquote new evidence that was necessary to win a case And he finished what the state started without question. It also seemed like Dummett seemed to take some pride in being the bad cop of the good cop, bad cop duo that him and Hess would do. 
Yeah, you don't like when they enjoy that. No. And this also obviously led to a very questionable reputation of him. Yeah. You know, everyone's like, all right, what the fuck are we doing? Right. So due to this, Recuglia said that he relied very seldom on the actual confession that Chester gave in his arguments, which I think is great. It's also really important because obviously Chester recanted his confession afterwards, but also the confession matched like almost none of the evidence at the crime scene. Right. There was a lot of speculation about the validity and the truthfulness of this confession. So I think it was pretty fucking good that that wasn't used a lot in the case against him. But what was used all the time was the plane. That was like the getcha. Right. You know? And so they had a super long court date also determining if the confession was eligible and they considered it to be admissible. So it was okay evidence. Okay. In the courtroom, though, a few things were brought out. And I'm going to talk about this as the case against Chester, as in the case for Chester's guilt. Mm -hmm. A few things to note here. Chester had a history. Chester had a juvenile record in which he was convicted of statutory rape at age 12. I don't know how that happens, but that's what they said. Wow. Uh, Chester also allegedly had beaten and raped his wife, which I don't believe there are any court proceedings of that alleged charge. And he seems to get very, very unwell if it's brought up, like, in interviews. He, like, cries about it. He's like, I have never touched my wife unconsensually. Okay. So I'm like, all right. Um, that being said, there were court reports on the statutory rape charge at 12. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And Chester had already recanted his guilt Chester said that his confession for this one was fake and that the police report on the statutory rape charge of 12 wasn't true. Oh. That's what he says. So the evidence used against Chester in court is as follows. Obviously, the twine. He had both kinds, which obviously all of the women had around them. 20 and 12 makes 32. Sure does. The Matheson rape where he was identified by the boyfriend in a lineup. Chester's suede jacket was found. This had blood splatters. Um. Chester says that it was animal blood, but I don't think they ever were able to confirm what kind of blood it was. That would have been so helpful. Yeah. Of course, there was the airplane fact. That's so many people saw. Um, There were also the scratches on Chester's face the day after, which I think is a pretty damning piece of evidence. Yeah, that wasn't a slip and fall. There is a lack of a verifiable alibi. Originally, his alibi was that he was writing a love letter in the basement. Okay. So no one can confirm that. And they say romance is dead. I know. The creep appeal, I guess. You know? (laughs) Um, And obviously the Rocky tattoo and then the frozen tree limb used to beat one of the women. There were trace amounts of wood found in her face. And the other two were beaten with a camera binoculars, respectively. And they thought that the way he described it was accurate, I guess. It should also be noted that of the evidence collected, including clothing and all of that, the women obviously had scarves and coats on and very little blood was visible on Chester's jacket. And now if you remember, these women were bludgeoned to death, so it's not right. going to be clean. But the blood was never typed to any of the women. Okay. Also, all of the evidence was kept in one fucking bag. 
Oh, come on. So his ba- his jacket is in the same bag as her skirt, her scarf. They just took a Ziploc and we're like, yep. Literally. Plus, this case was reopened in 2005 to look more into it. Um, Everyone and their fucking mother was able to go through that bag of evidence and touch it. Mm. So, where's the preservation there? It's just, It's fucking not. But not to mention, normally in cases like this, once it's solved, the evidence is destroyed. Right. So the fact that we have it and it's so poorly kept up means that people can use it and pretend that it's worthwhile when it's not because it's been so fucked with. Yeah. Anyway, furthering (laughs) on the actual case against Chester, there are a few things that have never been clear, though. No matter who you ask. One, why? If it was an attempted rape, why is there zero semen? And like not to get gross, mom and dad cover your ear, but like. There's not pre-cum. There's no fluid that doesn't have like swimmers going on. It's like like he was shooting blanks. He'd have to be shooting something to shoot a blank. Yeah. There's no DNA. Zero. Of his present there. Also, if it's a robbery, why leave expensive purses, cameras, binoculars, and right. jewelry on all the women? Yeah. They all had their wedding rings on. Maybe, there was, he, maybe he planned to go back. Later. Maybe. Could be. And, oh, I mean, maybe, but he had time. If this was Monday, he had Tuesday and Wednesday before this got caught. Maybe he had work Tuesday and Wednesday. You think of that? Could he's be. Got, he's got two kids at home. Yeah. He's got to he's got to upkeep appearances. But it's like also the I'm 60s. Just, I'm just devil's advocating anyway. here. So also, again, everyone and their mother knows that one man who's like 5'8 and a skinny little thing couldn't overpower three women unarmed on mm. his own. No. Plus, if you look at Starved Rock and look at some of the caves, you'll see that like they are up. They're raised. So it's not just like, here's a little stone wall above you. It's like you have to kind of climb on a rock to get in there. So the idea of one man getting three women hoisted up into a cave without being overtaken or having two of them run away. If it's the same one as the, is it Matheson State Math- Park? Yeah, Matheson State Park. He had a rifle. If it's the same one. So if it's him, I think... You could have 10 people do what yeah. you tell them to do. True. If you're if you've got something that they're afraid of, whatever that is, whether you've got a hatchet, it doesn't really matter. I think the only thing that leads me against the idea that he might have had a firearm on him was that none of them were killed by gunshots. In my mind, right, I can I can justify one of them not being killed by a gunshot. If a woman comes up behind you and you just bludgeon her to death with whatever's in front of you, which may have been the log. And then you go to get rid of the two others because you don't want witnesses. Why would you expend more physical energy bludgeoning them to death if you can just shoot them? Maybe he didn't want to take the easy way out. Could be. Maybe right. there's a maybe it's the process versus mm. the product. Could be. So Chester was indicted by a jury of 12 of his peers. OK. They found him guilty. Unlike the initial plea for the death penalty, though. The jury did come back and say that they just wanted life in prison. Now, I know that life is never life. And if it's not an LWAP, it's only like 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. But he was granted the ability to get parole. He okay. was denied parole a long ass time. But we'll find out there was a specific reason why the jury did this. Okay. So now we're going to do the case for Chester's innocence. 
Obviously, this is a clusterfuck of a case, but the evidence for Chester's innocence is also overflowing. There's so much in both of these columns, you know? Yeah. So this is going to bring us up to date on what we have. Then I'll share Chester's point of view on what happens, and we'll sort of go from there. The arguments for Chester includes that the evidence does not match the confession. None of that evidence entirely matches what he says happened. And none of the logistics of what happened could have happened with what he said. Of him just like tying them up to rob them and then dragging them into a cave. Right. And then one of them getting up and following him. It just doesn't make sense. Also, it was a confession gotten in a 36-hour interrogation that recanted the day after. I don't know. There's also no certainty on blood. There were no witnesses putting Chester at the scene. Just creepy circumstances and scratches. And if everyone thinks there was another perp, where do they fit in? Also, the evidence was very poorly gathered. And I found this out. The plane was known before Chester admitted it. Obviously, it's a plane. Anybody can see a plane. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I can be standing 30 miles, not 30, but like I could be standing like five miles from you and see the same thing flying overhead. Mm -hmm. But the detectives, Dummett and Hess, already knew that the plane was there. So, like, they had verified the plane before Chester brought it up. So, is it possible that maybe one of them said something about it Mm -hmm. or, like, led him to that? I don't know. Maybe not, but maybe. Also, this entire case rests on the merit of Bill Dummett, Dustpan Dummett, Mm -hmm. um, who literally perjured himself in this case, which we'll talk about later. But he then took the log used to bludgeon the woman and put it on his fucking mantle. Yeah. The last thing that I'll say. Talk about taking a trophy. What's up with you? Yeah. I would look into fucking that, you know. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning um, that isn't really touched on, but I think really fucking should be touched on, is that the husbands of the women put out a reward. It was like $30,000 or $35,000, which is a lot for the 60s. Yeah. It's a lot now. But the first attorney general, Harlan Warren, he got most of the cut of that. <laughs> yeah. And you he split it with Dummett and Hess. You can't accept that. Yes. No. That's what he did. And he got most of it, despite saying like, no, I don't want it. It's like, well, then how'd you end up with 15 grand, Harland? No, 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 no. Well. well <laughs> maybe just a l- I did do my job like well. So. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. So there's obviously quite a bit of evidence that helps Chester in all of this, too. Fucking horrible. I would have said, you know what? Why don't you put that in a fund for your children who are all the children that are now motherless? Yeah. How about that? Why don't we why don't we do something? Why instead of giving 35 grand to people that are already getting paid to do their fucking jobs? Let's pour this back into our broken family who just lost its mother. Jesus. Anyway, what do I know? Donate it to a cause they're passionate about. The PTA, something. I know. Be like, nah, dude, this is going to get me a boat. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. So the other thing I wanted to mention is by this time, they had found evidence in the woman's hands that were some strands of hair that Mm -hmm. they hadn't originally collected. This hair did not match Chester's and it did not match any of the women. Okay. So we have separate hair somewhere. I don't know if they kept that evidence intact. I fucking doubt it, but... We know it didn't match Chester. This isn't great. 
So another thing we're going to talk about is that, like I said, this is 1961. There's a lot that hasn't happened. A lot of SCOTUS precedents that haven't been set. Yeah, we've got nothing in the way of DNA. Pretty much at that time, yep. unless he said, yup, it's me, and he didn't change it. Yep. It's really hard to prove that. You just gathered it and hoped you'd have a way to test it later. Literally. And in case you missed it, in 1963, two short fucking years later, we got Brady v. Maryland, which is the Supreme Court case that gives us the precedent that all exculpatory evidence has to come forward. Meaning anything that could help Chester had to come forward. You said 1963 and I was like, yeah, and JFK died. Oh, <laughs> 1963 was a year. I'm sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you. It's been, it's been really hard. I fucking <laughs> yeah. love JFK. I know you just. But two years later, this happens two years later. No. And he just missed it by a hair. No pun intended. Because Ugh. I don't know what Anthony Recuglia didn't need this non matching hair evidence in his case. Yeah, you can't so treat it. So it just it. didn't have to come forward. You can't treat it like a fucking buffet. Oh, this works. I'll take this. Oh, we'll leave I'll that. A little bit that, of this. That doesn't help me. I'll leave that. Oh, yes. we'll take a little bit of that. Come on. Uh-huh. Well, so, it was I mean, it wasn't a law yet. Yeah. This that was common practice. That's true. So and it had to get so bad that it became Yeah. Beca- it became worthy of the Supreme Court's time, but this is what I mean. It's like there are so many things in here that, if done now, would be so different. Yeah, they would have out. to be different. Yeah. So, other problems with this court case included that statutory rape charge. First and foremost, Chester was 12 at the time of this offense. And juvenile cases are sealed. Your juvenile record should be sealed. I don't know if there's a Supreme Court case that comes up later that talks about not including past charges in your current charge as evidence like like as a child you mean yeah like Like a juvenile me at 10 stole a candy bar from x grocery store and now at 23 you're saying that i did grand theft auto because i stole a candy bar once you know what i mean Mm. that you can't do that so i don't know if that has happened that has been put into policy since then or not but they did use this man's juvenile court case i mean i feel like history is fair game yeah but i i don't know i just don't think that has anything to do with whether or not he did commit these. Yeah, I mean, it's worth looking into. I would say that if, if it's a sex-related crime, then I would say this being what they believe to be a sex-related right. crime would be something of note. Yeah, and I definitely think it's important in, like, looking at your suspects and looking at who might have had the wherewithal or, like, a pattern. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that it's necessarily court evidence to say that beyond a reasonable doubt he murdered these three women. Anyway, I also just wanted to touch on this because there are a few different stories of this. And we actually get to hear three, which is not super common. So we get to read the police report. We hear Chester's version and we hear Chester's sister's version. Huh. So where does she come into play? She actually Chester was very close with his sisters growing up. But Mary and her friend were walking home. And if you read the police report, Chester allegedly saw his sister get home safely and then took her friend and raped her. There also was allegedly blood all over the pants, which he called snake blood. If you ask Chester, his sister got home and then he heard crying in the woods where he went and helped her friend home. And the friend is the one who said she had been raped. He got her home. The police came to him later 
And the dad of the girl actually called the police and asked them to let Chester go. Oh. So those are two different stories. And Mary's is kind of in between. I think she said that he walked her friend home, but I don't know if she said that it was from their house or if he found her in the woods or something. But it was like a minor detail. Okay. But But still everyone. Right. In that they agreed. Yes. So I don't know. I just it doesn't feel like sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he did this at 12 and that because he did this at 12, he killed these three women. I yeah. So I can roll with that. Regardless, it was put into evidence for the trial of the starved rock murders. So what the fuck do I know? I guess. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And again, since that time, it's been 63 years since the murder and 62 since Chester's conviction to life in prison. Catching up on the now, Chester has lots of thoughts on what happened then. Okay. Like I said, that documentary, The Starved Rock Murders, Dave Recuglia, the son of the prosecutor, uh, he's on a mission to find some closure for this case. He clearly has some trauma surrounding it. Like he was a kid and alive when this happened. And the, oh, Oh, my gosh. The other argument against Chester, like for his guilt, Mm. is that after he got sentenced, he looked at the prosecutor and said, you're going to be who I get when I get out. Spooky. Not great. That's not. Not great. Did you, sir, did you just commit criminal threatening in a court of law? He said, yeah. And are you still under oath, you dumbass? He said, guess what? I've already got life. (laughs) Oh, God. He goes, and that's on having nothing to lose. (laughs) So I think that's probably a lot of the trauma that Dave gets. I could see how that would be concerning. Like, oh, no, my daddy's going to get got. Mm -hmm. You know, that's scary. Um, I also think it's just honorable for him to like go through and say, I want to find the truth. Because even though that's scary for him, he's like, there's so much evidence in both columns. I need to know what happened. I need to know what actually happened. So I can appreciate that. But I also think that it's important because Anthony Recuglia, the prosecutor, is very convicted in his belief that Chester's guilty. Um, So I think that it's good to have someone who grew up like that, who has all of that background knowledge, who has the intimate knowledge from the conversations he can have with his dad Mm -hmm. to say, there's still some unfinished business. Let me look into this. I mean, even if he was in on it. Right. What if there are three people exactly so david and i'll go back and forth between david and dave but you david you david he was able to speak a lot with chester chester is obviously in or was in prison in illinois so he had a lot of time to just sit in a room and chat um and chester has not ever stopped appealing this case it was reopened in 2005 he has appealed a bunch but he has applied for parole a bunch and been denied a bunch he actually wasn't he wasn't granted parole until anthony recuglia died okay so he has since been paroled yes he was paroled in 2019 wait so if he was 21 in 1960 then uh-huh. he okay he's so, an old man so he's what 80 yeah he's in his 80s 84 something like that damn also And I'll touch on this briefly later, but he did get released right before COVID. So he got put out on parole in a halfway house and then COVID hit. And he was like, well, it's no fucking different. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Guys lived a life. What a time. Not only have you never 
really seen the world since 1960, but then you see mm-hmm. COVID world 2020. Yep. And that's where you first come in. And it's like, I have to learn how to use Zoom. I don't even know what a cell phone is. He's like, is. where's President Kennedy? I don't. <laughs> our, one of our few open-minded presidents. <laughs> where, where is everybody? Where'd he go? I mean, even his kids are in their 60s. Yeah. Yeah. He missed a ton. He's probably got adult, you know, adult grandkids. He, yes, he does. Ugh. So, I mean, still, if he did it, well, then they yeah. were better off without you, you asshole. But. But if not, oh, but if so, oh, well. Yeah, I'm very wishy-washy with this because it just depends if he did it. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, so, I'll feel bad for the sweet old man. Otherwise, he can rot in hell. Perhaps both. <laughs> um, who knows? So initially, he appealed, he appealed, he appealed. He requested clemency. The clemency request got denied, and he is still appealing. He has never stopped appealing. <laughs> But I think despite his efforts to consistently fight for his name's clearance, that this documentary actually helped a lot. I think his conviction in his innocence and Dave's dad's conviction in Chester's guilt is really what led Dave to do this documentary. Hmm. Like, you both believe all of this so wholeheartedly. How? Yeah. So Dave gets into interview Chester a lot. And I'm so grateful that he was able to do so much of that on camera because it lets us sort of see more body language than we would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, Chester starts with how crooked the interrogation was. Also, just so you know, so you can picture it with me. He's like this frail little old guy. He's tall. He's thin. He's got incredibly Scottish looking eyebrows. And was by that, I mean, they're recently? everywhere. Um, like from the early 2000s to when okay. it came out, which so he was, was not long ago. Probably in his 60s at the yeah. time. Okay. So he, most of our interviews from Dave to Chester are between 63 and like 84, I think. His ages, you mean? Yeah. Not the years. Okay. Correct. Sorry. Yeah. They were done after the 2000s. All right. But... Chester, oh God, if you look into body language, if you look into like any of the tells on if people are lying, I don't know if he's just had a ton of time to look things up on a prison computer. Maybe he, he has. has, but boy, oh boy, his body language is consistent with someone who believes with like what they're saying. He does not seem to be lying, at least in these interviews. So Chester starts with the interrogation and how crooked it was. Chester alleges that Dummett and Hess were incredibly violent, saying that if he didn't confess, the jury would go for the electric chair and he'd die. Chester was said they also threatened his wife's well-being. Chester claims that the interrogation where he was held for 36 hours, he was beaten really badly, um, including with the nightstick. He was kneed in the stomach. He was hit with flashlights. And Chester's saying this and crying. Like a grown man after 40 years in prison is crying, recounting this. So, I mean, there's an element of me that's like, okay, shit, how much of that is true? Because it's clearly bringing something up. Chester says he believes if he was alone with either two of the men, he'd be dead. He firmly believes that it was only because there were other people in the room that he's alive. Wow. Wow. Now, the concern with this is, of course, that the evidence hearing where they determined whether or not that confession could be admitted 
Nothing was noted. He didn't claim the abuse at the time. He didn't say he was mistreated. In fact, in the hearing, he said that he was treated well, he was given cigarettes and a sandwich, and that they didn't coerce anything out of him. And if they were, you know, I mean, that's not to say that that couldn't have happened. Right. Because anything can happen in a locked room with no cameras. Absolutely. However, if he had court or like some kind of hearing in front of literally anybody else. Yeah. The next day or in a few days, which typically is. Mm -hmm. If he got beat as bad as that sounds. Yeah. He'd have a black eye. He'd. I mean, there would be evidence of that there would be bruises he might be limping he might have something you would think that you'd potentially think. yeah that you'd be able to tell like hey this guy got roughed up what exactly what happened here also you know dave sits and he goes well why didn't you say anything if it was that bad why did you say nothing on record mm-hmm. and chester said his defense attorney john mcnamara allegedly told chester that no one would believe him Chester claimed that he was jabbed with the nightstick in the stomach over and over and all of this. But even in the 1960s, when they had that hearing, nothing came up. And a side tangent, everybody who knew John McNamara, his defense attorney, was like, as fucking if that guy loves to point out police brutality. He brings that up whenever he gets a chance. So. I mean, like, rightfully so, but no, so like. You're telling me that you told him and that's the guy that told you not to say anything? If anything, your defense attorney is going to scream that from the rooftops. Yeah. It is hard, though, because this man believes what he's saying. He talks about getting need in the gut and that literally through tears, he's saying that it just wouldn't stop. I mean, he could be recalling a memory of in prison getting the shit beat out of him. Potentially. And those emotions he's feeling as a result are real, but the situation's fake. Also, I think worth noting, Chester believes everything that he has said, not just this, at least from what I can tell. And I feel like I have a pretty good tale on body language. I know that that's not everything and you can be really good Mm -hmm. at hiding it, but... He's had decades to practice. Exactly. But I've, you know... I don't know. I don't know. After 60 some years, decades in prison, compounded trauma, does he believe that it's the truth or is it a version that he made up in his head? I I don't know. Right. Because my thought is that with all of this, if it's not true, I think your brain only has so much space. You know what I mean? Like at some point after 60 years of trying to survive in prison... Do you just accept what you keep telling yourself is the truth and let that space used up by the real details get taken up by other things? Isn't it easier to... Oh, absolutely. And especially when he's not been condemned to death or something. I mean, not to say that those on death row don't endlessly appeal. That's true, too. But if you feel like you've got like an iota of a chance to get out... Yeah. You will say fucking anything. And that's human nature. And and I think it's funny, like in the same way that... You know, years ago, I think it was like the English government or yeah. prison system wouldn't fault any prisoner for trying to break out because they're yeah. like, we won't fault man's primal instinct to be free. Yeah. Actually, so, I believe that's still the case in Sweden. They won't prosecute. If, for yeah. That. So if you try to break out 
or if you do break out you won't be charged with breaking out if they find you you're going to go back but you're not right. going to be severely punished and nothing's going to be say, added on oh you shouldn't have done that yeah no it's primal because they're saying that that and so the, in the same way that we can believe that or so, you know some of us can right mm-hmm. then why couldn't we say if you believe that there's a chance you can get out i'm not going to fault anyone who's going to say whatever they can to believe right to be believed to get out right i think that that's in that same vein it's humanity you know i think that's human nature and there's a self-preservation measure and i think everyone's got a limit yeah and he's been like if if this is the case and he has done it i mean if you've got a chance of getting out you're never gonna say that out loud yeah like that's that's between you and god at this point like you are not going to speak to that speak any of that to anybody i also just think that it's worth noting that like he could just be a very confused old man. He, he could. could just really believe this. And that is not me trying to be ageist. This is just me saying like this man is not in his best health. He is not in a place that is conducive to like happy, healthy mental health. Um, He might be able to go to the rec yard and lift weights for a little bit. But he's like an old man. But if he's in his 80s and he's recalling, you know, being beat up. Right. It's more than likely to me that he's been beat up in in prison another inmate especially you did what to women like they've got wives they've got daughters they've got mothers there is a culture in prisons and that would be an entirely really awesome good cj short episode to do would be like prison culture but the idea that like there are some things that you you cannot do and or you could not have been incarcerated for then and like they'll beat the shit out of you oh yeah they have their own moral uh, code and and set of rules that he could have had the shit beat out of him every single fucking day for that if any of them found out about a statutory rape charge at 12 Mm -hmm. yeah his his shit would be rocked so if he's saying i was be i just i was waiting for it to stop i got hit in the stomach i got beat in the face i got all of these things he could be recalling a very real memory, which is why he presents as being honest. Also, and this is just where my brain goes. We know the reputation of Dummit. Dustpan Dummit? I also have no fucking doubt in my head that the man who would trophy a log used to bludgeon women to death might hit you in the fucking stomach. That's so odd. What an odd... i don't even have words for that that's that's so morbid that's so yeah that this is what i mean like i go back and forth because it's like i totally believe that chester could have done it and probably had a role in it and i also completely believe that everyone involved in this did such a shit job yeah that like who knows maybe it's a combo of all of it i i mean i i guess i lean in the camp that he did it or like could have i don't know that with this i I mean i would vote i would have to do a not guilty yeah because i'm not beyond a reasonable i'm not i'm not convinced but so (laughs) just to sort of wrap that piece up a nice little quote from anthony recuglia the prosecutor Mm. everyone that was involved in that investigation in my opinion did a terrible job (laughs) (laughs) mic drop mic drop um, I also wanted to bring up just again how we talked about how Dummett perjured himself. Well, under oath, he testified that he never threatened Chester, especially with life in prison. But in the same courtroom on the same day, his counterpart, 
did say that he heard Dummett threaten Chester with quote unquote riding a thunderbolt, i.e. going to the electric chair at least five times in one night. Riding a thunderbolt? That is the yep. most 1960s <laughs> yep. Midwest way to tell someone you're, you're going to fry him. If you don't tell me the truth, you're going to be riding a thunderbolt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't you know? Still, oh, don't you know? I'll stick some corn up your ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Almost goes a little Irish. I was kind of funny. Say, Irish who? <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little bit about the community. Corn up because there's a lot of people who believe he's innocent. And there's a lot of people that believe he's guilty as hell. Yeah. So it had a huge impact on LaSalle, Illinois. First of all, like, okay, nothing ever happens in the fucking Midwest. Of course, this is going to take over people's lives. But also. <laughs> Did you hear they stuck corn up that guy's ass? <laughs> after he wrote a thunderboat. You know, <laughs> thunderboat? <laughs> th- <laughs> Fuck. Um. That being said, I wanted to touch a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit on the Committee to Free Chester Uyghur. Oh. Which is a committee of at least three people. It used to be much bigger. It now consists of three people. Um, oh. That in is LaSalle, the, Illinois. That is the saddest meeting. And not because other people don't think he's innocent. It's because they call the three, like, at the heart of this group, the three stooges and quote unquote lunatic fringe. Oh. Yeah. Um, so clearly they have some rumination, some obsessions. Um, they're very invested in this case, including like going through old newspaper clippings and having like poster boards of the newspaper clippings. And like, here's what I believe. And I think that this was part of an organized crime thing doing this and that and this. Are they like hyper conspiracy theorists where yeah. you just can't even be- like. Yeah. Where you're like. Okay, guys, sometimes they the color foil. yellow is just the color yellow. And the tinfoil hats. And- yeah. Okay. Well. So that is not super great because I do think it was a valiant effort. And I think a lot of people do believe he's innocent. Yeah. But the- having that in your corner almost takes away from your cause. Exactly. So it's like, stop with the lunatic fringe shit. Yeah. Shut then it's it down. like, it's kooky. It's not. Yeah. And then everybody valid. just disregards everything you have to say. So even if they have valid points, even if they have solid concrete evidence or mm-hmm. additions no one's gonna listen to them yeah, but if they're still using kerosene lamps because they don't trust the government because they think it's in the electricity well then right. i'm really not coming to your meeting it's cold in here yeah sorry <laughs> it's march in illinois uh, yeah, it's like, snowing let me heat up i don't know so i also just wanted to say that not only is the community still up in arms about it but also most of the jury didn't feel good about it Nancy Porter, one of the jurors, said that she wasn't sure anyone was sure. The jurors... Well, that's not how it's supposed to go. Yeah. The jurors <laughs> said that there was nothing but the signed confession to prove he did it. No other evidence really pointed him to being there. However, she did say that the whole reason they came back with life in prison and not the death penalty was that if more evidence ever came out, he'd have the chance to get out. That's where they were at. They were like, we are so unsure that we're going to turn down the death penalty only because we want him to have any hopes of getting out. Ugh. Isn't that fucky? Oh, that's fucky. It's so bad. So before we end, I did just want to end with my list of alternative suspects and theories. Okay. Because, again, Chester did get paroled. He got paroled in 2019. Let's armchair detective this shit. Hit me. first parole board after Anthony Recuglia died. Yep. Also, um, in case you're like me and you're really into like psych stuff and sort of emotional touchy feely shit, 
uh, during this documentary process, like over the time that Dave recorded it, his dad was alive and passed. So you kind of see his takeaway from this case, like not quite shift, but sort of evolve with the grief of his father. It's fascinating. But anyway. And all of this insanity, let's talk about what the other suspects were. The first theory I wanted to talk about has nothing to do with the woman at all, but instead their husbands. Um, remember how I mentioned that they were all relatively prominent? Mm-hmm. Well, usually prominent men have prominent enemies. Yeah. Um, and I guess the Illinois Crime Commission said that LaSalle County was filled with organized crime, um, including that they believed there was some big money involved, like individuals getting up to 25000 to do this bootleg corn sales bootleg corn sales you know it the black market of corn baby um and allegedly the motivation was that one of the woman's husbands mr murphy was having an affair with his secretary and got her pregnant he got married originally it was said that it was only like six weeks after the murder but then someone went back and said that was a typo and it was like two years so i'm like hmm someone's gotta know did nobody follow up on that i know at all um so i suppose husbands organizing murders could be theory one i also wanted to point out that there was some bit of evidence there was a glove i believe from one of the women that there it's always a glove it's always a glove sorry oj actually you're welcome oj (laughs) um (laughs) but one of the women had the tip of their finger their index finger cut off and they said that could be like an organized crime nod like yeah here's her finger she's dead Ooh. so that's theory one theory two if they didn't find her fingertip i guess that that's yeah holds a little bit of weight yeah not if it was 10 feet away and you just didn't fucking look well we don't know that but we know they didn't find it there and mm. I'm assuming that because they didn't find it there and they didn't find the tip of the glove there, that it wasn't. Hmm. You know, an animal could eat the fingertip, but you're probably not going to eat the glove. <laughs> if you're going to eat a fingertip, what's a glove? Well, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm you not know, a raccoon. let us know in the comments. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Comment below. Would you eat a glove? <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> please, please don't. We don't need any record of what we just said. So. Then I wanted to talk about the second prominent suspect, George Spiros, the owner of the lodge. Okay. So many people believe that George was at least one of the murderers. This is a pretty common belief. George not only left to go back to Greece right after until the quote unquote heat died down. (laughs) That was a quote. Um, Sus. But George also allegedly used to just pop up and watch some of the employees do their jobs. So like I said, it was like a lodge. So they would, you know, clean the rooms, make the beds. Mm-hmm. I think there were a few cabins included as well. So like separate from the lodge, but still within their like domain. And one of the women actually said in this documentary that like she would just get the feeling she was being watched and she'd look up and George would be there staring at her. Mm-hmm. He also had dogs that were incredibly intense. And I mean, like kind of violent so she was saying one of the days that she was like changing the sheets on a bed she looked up saw george out the window went to leave because she was done with the house and the dogs were circling the cabin and like wouldn't let her leave and it freaked her out yeah then she said that sometimes he would just smack the help's ass he would just like smack an ass if he wanted to uh and like 
granted, it's the 60s. And I know that some men were like, you mean I can't even hug my female coworkers anymore? But like, ah, that's a that's a different line. I don't I don't think it. I don't think you have to be super in on the the hip, you know, youth waves to know that you shouldn't smacking random women's asses. Yeah, I don't think you get a booty squeeze. Especially when they're your employees. Boss. But what do I know? The only thing I can defend mm-hmm. is if he was leaving to go back to Greece to mm-hmm. just be like, wow, all of this like negative attention on the business. Like, I, yeah, this could ruin my livelihood. I need a minute. Although, I think you'd be there trying to like help and alleviate it and then do the facelift and like well and also in like your best interest that this gets solved and squared away so that like no one else is suspected yeah but i guess just being like this is a lot of bad press and like reporters won't leave me alone because this happened nearby and i just need to get away but here's the thing Mm. the crime scene photos also had dog prints in them oh shit I don't know. I no one looked into that. Their dog prints in them. And the woman that had talked in that documentary said the second I saw the dog prints, I knew he was in on it. Ugh. That I was like, ooh, okay. All right. Ooh, that's kind of haunting. I believe very strongly that George may have had something to do with it. No. But you also think Chester did. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I have my own theory. I'll, I'll share. Ooh. But not only with the dog prints in the photos, but also obviously due to his reputation and some of the spooky shit around the end of his life. Oh, like I said, he passed. It was. Oh, gosh. It was between 2004 and 2006. I can't remember off the top of my head. But he and this I'm just going to throw out a trigger warning here. It's icky. So skip if you need to. But um, he allegedly killed himself after finding out he had a cancer diagnosis. Okay. Um. The trigger warning is that he also shot his dog. Oh. And he did all of this after grocery shopping for the week. And now don't get me wrong. I know that mental illness is not logical and that's part of the problem. But if you have cancer, your dog doesn't have cancer. And why go grocery shopping for the week if you're not going to eat the groceries? And it's not like you're leaving food in the house for your dog to eat it because you took him with you. That's so. And he left the groceries on his front porch. Like his front steps. Did he not get killed? That's what I think. I mean. But a report says that he took his own life. He got got. I think he done got got. Yeah. And the report said that. What's his face? I mean. Yeah, exactly. Um, The third one. Well, there is a fourth. But the third one is also one that I have some heavy stakes in. Mm-hmm. And by stakes, I mean, I just believe it a bit. But um, the third is the local barber, Stanley Tucker. So something I didn't mention because what'd you do, bud? Stanley. Stanley. Stanley Tucker. Um, Nowhere near as cool as Stanley Tucci. No offense, but just saying. Um, Here's the thing. I do believe that this does not matter at all, but it is worth noting for the sake of explaining this, that Chester later changed his alibi. Mm. When the case got reopened for one of the billionth times in 2005, Actually, I think that was the first time. But when it got reopened, he suddenly changed his alibi. He was no longer writing a love letter to a girl in the basement. Not his wife. A N- girl. A girl. Ugh. Yeah. Um, but he was getting his hair cut at the barber's at Stanley Tucker's mm. barbershop. And everyone was like, why the fuck wouldn't you say that? 
Also, when they reopened it in 2005, Stanley Tucker just <laughs> couldn't remember. He just couldn't remember what he was doing. I mean, you're asking him to remember something that happened 45 years ago. Yeah, but on the day that people got murdered. You'd probably know. Yeah. Unless it was an inconsequential day for you. But we'll talk a little bit about that. Mm. So Stanley said that it was George Spiros and him in the murder. He said this on his own. Uh, this may explain the decision to quote unquote forget everything on the stand. That, that'll that'll do it. See, if Stanley was with George, maybe he got scared or maybe it was Stanley and Chester or the three of them. But Stanley told a local girl like a friend of his that they threatened him with life in prison. And that he perjured himself and said that if she said anything, they'd hurt her or her family. And she said that was the last she ever saw of Stanley Tucker. Wow. He took the fuck off. Then, the day that he left, he said all of the evidence would have been in his truck. He was like, yeah, I got everything in my, er, sorry, my trunk. He was like, yeah, I got everything in my trunk. I got to go. I can't stick around. He left after he told this girl all this. Wow. And never came back until he was called to testify in 2005. So, Bill Jansen, who is the only other living person that was involved in the initial court hearings, he was a police investigator, I think. Um, it was a standstill, he said. It, they had a few suspects, nothing concrete. It was complicated from the beginning. The details didn't make much sense. And where the women were found was a distance from the lodge, which made no sense with the bad back and the slipped disc and all of this. He says it's treacherous and a hard hike, but the west entrance is so much easier that he thought someone gave them a ride, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, Bill thinks that they were seen at the root beer stand and driven to the west entrance. Another witness mm -hmm. said that they saw a black car at the west entrance with two men. One had a leather fringe jacket, like that of which matched Chester's, pouring water on the hand of another man's hands. Stanley Tucker had a black car. It was a black Cadillac, actually. So it was a sedan, and it was dark, and Chester could have been wearing a leather jacket and pouring water on the hands of a man who helped him kill women. Ooh. Bill says that he believes Stanley gave them the ride. So there's that. Also, Harlan Warren said that he was interested in Stanley Tucker, but they didn't have enough evidence to prosecute him. Chester... Says that Stanley was a good guy and he wouldn't bother nobody. Oh. Yep. And last, the fourth potential. I don't know how much I believe this is possible, um, but there was a local named Smokey Rona. Alice Rona is her his sister, and she said her brother, Harold, quote-unquote Smokey Rona, um, said that before he died, he wanted to tell the truth, and he started talking he confessed to being one of the killers. Smokey confesses that he was one of the primary people involved with the murders. Um, and he was the muscle and the guy who did a lot of crime in his small town. It's guesstimated that he's killed about 13 people without the three of these. Guesstimated. In. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's a lot. Jesus. He's like a hitman. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe he had something to do with it too. So at the end of this and just looking at what's going on, I wanted to sort of wrap up by talking about where Chester is and where we're at. Due to the inconsistent evidence, the inability to give any concrete answers and a lot of convincing and particularly the lack of 
Anthony Recuglia's presence to insist on Chester's guilt. In 2019, he was granted parole. He was released to St. Leonard's Halfway House in March of 2020, only to once again get hit by COVID. Mm. He actually did get COVID and he survived it. So that's cool. He's still kicking. John Weger, Chester's son, spent the most time with his dad behind bars for a few months earlier in his life. He was the infant when Chester got put away. And John has gotten a few, quote unquote, deviant sexual charges in his life. Oh, no. During which one of the prison stints that he did was behind bars in the same prison as his dad. And it was the only time they ever got to connect. Jesus, he never had a conversation with his dad outside of prison walls. Not until he was paroled in 2019, in which they got to speak for about a month. And even he was, what, 60? At the time? Yeah. yeah. His son would have been, yeah, if he was an infant in 1960, then Oh, he he's a grown man. 59. And John says that he, quote unquote, taught me how to love and how to care about somebody besides myself. However, these days they're not allowed to be in contact as John is registered as a sex offender. I believe Chester is too. And there's a law that says they can't speak. Yeah, you can't um, hang well, out. If you're on parole, you can't. So hang out with felons. Yeah. And Chester's on parole. They'll do it. So other than that, Chester's still fighting for his name to be cleared. Uh, Everybody else is still fighting to figure out what the fuck happened. (laughs) Um, You know, I think it's worth quoting one more time. Anthony Recuglia, because he's got some great quotes. I'll be real. Oh, let's hear it. You can't judge Chester's testimony. And if it was voluntary or involuntary in 2000s law. It didn't have to be voluntary if it was truthful in the 60s. So he could have gotten the shit beaten out of him. And as long as it wasn't on record, Hmm. he added it. Wow. And, you know, after all, it is going to take, quote unquote, something big to get Chester exonerated. He is the longest prison sentence in U.S. history. If it were to be vacated, he would make a record because he's already been there for 60 years. Wow. As for me, I think Chester was in on it. I don't think he did it alone, and I don't think he thinks that he did it anymore. (laughs) You know, an alternate reality can very easily become reality after 60 years in prison. But... Yeah, I think you sleep better at night if you tell yourself you didn't do that. Probably. And I think that his brain just got filled with so many other traumas and other things that he had to deal with that he either chose to stop remembering or his brain chose for him. Well... After meeting with Dave Recuglia, Chester sent him many letters. These letters included much of Chester's life, from the childhood rape allegations to the trauma of watching his sister get raped and being forced to watch by, like, neighborhood boys. Chester did not have a happy, healthy young life. He had a lot of trauma and a lot of darkness and was filled with a lot of anger and resentment. And that doesn't automatically mean he killed someone, but it offers a little more insight into how his brain worked. Also, Chester wrote a really sus letter to his father that we also didn't find out about until like very recently, a few years ago. And the letter is from right after he got caught. It was December 6th of 1960. It was incredibly cryptic and hard to understand. But Chester wrote it awaiting trial at the county jail and said something along the lines of, Dear Dad, I don't know how to say this, but I have to and I don't want you to say... 
I don't want you saying anything or I'll try to get the electric chair myself. Everyone else's life means more to me than I know. David thinks that it means he's not the real killer, but he has information that maybe he's sitting on or was threatened with. Chester denies writing it, and Chester says he was never protecting anyone, but that letter is sus, sus, sus. Yes. <laughs> Everyone else's life means more to me than mine. Hmm. Mm. Curious about that. I agree that the confession seems forced. There was obviously something unethical going on, <laughs> regardless of whether or not any of the recounted stories were true. I, if you're taking money for doing your job and you're taking home a trophy after perjuring yourself on the stand, I'm going to call that unethical, regardless of whether or not there was corroborated violence, you know? Yeah, even if that was the common practice then or in that area or whatever. Right. That still doesn't sit right. And I think it's prudent of the jury that they didn't push for the death penalty, that they said, I mean, yeah, I guess there's evidence, but all right, I guess life, like, <laughs> at least you're choosing life. But I also think that we should not think that just because this man is older in his life that he has nothing to gain from getting this taken off his record. He is older. Um, and I really believe that he believes he had nothing to do with it now, but between the scratches on his face, the twine combination, the knowledge and the intimate details of something as simple of the colors of the plane flying overhead. It all leads me to believe that he was there. What role he played, I don't know. But in my head, it probably went along the lines of something like this. George Spiros, the owner of the lodge, spots our woman checking in. They go to the root beer stand and you know I know that he's a creep and he keeps an eye on him he's also really good friends with Stanley Tucker that's been confirmed and they've been known to dare each other to like do random things like they go break in or like go steal that six-pack or something like that um so my thought is whether or not he met up with Stanley at the root beer shack or at the lodge and said hey I found these women um I think that you know he probably dared them to do something rob them maybe rape them maybe i don't know and then seems like maybe giving some time or that one of them fought back they ended up killing them all i think chester may have been roped into it no pun intended probably for the actual rope and tying up of hands um and then either to keep them subdued or to participate in whatever offenses took place then I think Stanley fled town with the evidence in his truck. George went to Greece, and the only person left to take blame was Chester. But here's the thing. We have a national registry of exonerations for a reason. Ideally, we'd never convict the wrong guy. And maybe we didn't, but maybe we did. And if we were perfect, of course we wouldn't need a registry, like a full-ass registry that's updated constantly. And I believe in righting wrongs and letting the truth come out. But to say that all Chester would gain from this and clearing his name is reputation is certainly a lie. If Chester is exonerated, he could civilly sue the state and get over $100 million, potentially. <laughs> Enough to get him a fancy car for the last of his days and take care of his family for the rest of theirs. And I don't know. Maybe guilt for never being in your family's life will do that to you. But that's it. That's all I got. Wow. That was the murder at Starved Rock. Wow. Yeah. Um, I feel a little speechless. 
Isn't that wild? I feel like you put that together at the end so well. <laughs> Nothing to add. That's all I got. Like everything is such a clusterfuck. Well, like, it is. And I think at the very base of it, and you opened with this, and what always frustrates me is that there is no information available on the victims. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the only reason these conversations are being had is because three moms were murdered three wives mom like i don't know just people yeah, well yeah three people but like you think of it in the context of all of the people that knew them and cared about them and yeah. all of and all of the ways that th- that loss is still felt even today and at the end of the day the only thing is like you know dustpans got his fucking driftwood on his yep. <laughs> mantle and chester the molester maybe even really yeah <laughs> Ro- rocky was here on the cave and you know all all these other things and it's like it's awful that you can find a lot of information about that and then at the end of the day like it just seems and like all i have on francis murphy mildred lindquist and lillian oding was that they were on the pta and that one of them went to presbyterian church was (laughs) probably cheating on them yeah so and that's not a reflection of you. I don't mean that at oh, all. No, I, that, that, she had nothing to do with that. But, but, that, in the, but in the 19... I mean, and granted, we're talking about a case that's from a long time ago. So finding sources on that's going to be difficult. It was not yeah. in the digital age. And if you don't find the actual newspapers, which it sounds like you did. Yeah, I got some good ones. Like you probably got all that's available. And it's just sad that that was all that was available. And also just like... This is why victimology is so important. This is one of those that to me is like, okay... Great, you found a bunch of fucking evidence, but nobody, not one person, has been able to string together any semblance of a reason. And like I said before, if you know the why, you're damn close to the who. So figure out the why. Like, the evidence isn't going anywhere. And then it's just victimization compounded with victimization Mm -hmm. where you've got three women dead, their families devastated, their husbands widowers. You've got... Empty seats at that fucking dinner table. Empty seats at the PTA forever. meetings. You've you know. got all of those things. And if Chester didn't do it, which I don't believe that he's 100% innocent, but let's let's just say, for example, that he is, mm-hmm. then you've taken him away from his family, his sister, his wife, his two babies. Yep. Potentially, uh, that victimization compounded into his son victimizing someone. Which means now, oh, look, there's another exponential string of victims. Here we go. Now, this is generational yep. issues, trauma, criminal activity. And, like, I'm not saying in any semblance that Chester doesn't deserve peace or wellness or health. He deserves all of those things. And I'm glad that he got paroled. Like I said, regardless of whether or not he actually did it, I believe that he doesn't believe that he did it. So I don't think he's a really big threat. You know, he's an 80-year-old guy who didn't want to die in a prison cot. I respect that. I mean, if he did do it, I wish he'd be back there. But that's, you know, but I will say this. I don't even, it doesn't even sound like he would be capable of doing it himself. Exactly. And I kind of agree with you that it sounds a lot like those other two Either knew more than they'd let on, but they had the funds to dip when it got... Yeah, when shit got real. Yeah, and they were able to do that. And they one of them wasn't really a local. Yeah. The other could just leave town and up and leave. And Chester didn't have that option. He went to work as the dishwasher. He's yeah. got three mouths at home to feed. 
And also, you know, I didn't mention this because I personally don't find it a very viable piece of evidence, but Chester's mom also worked for the lodge. She was like a a laundry person. She mm-hmm. would do like all the linens and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And allegedly she found a bunch of fucking bloody clothes in George's apartment. But hmm. then by the time people came to check it out, they were gone. Hmm. And I'm like, She'd well, say yeah, did yet. you wash them? But also if it's your mom, like, is she washing them for you? And she just put them in his place or like, yep. there's could a be. lot of different things that could be happening there. Maybe she's telling the truth. Maybe it's all George and Stanley. But like, I believe it was the two of them. And I believe that Chester played some role. Because there's no other... There's no other reason for him to know the things he knows and to be connected in the ways that he is, you know, Mm -hmm. with the rope, with the scratches like this is my armchair detective brain. All I can think about is what we have. And then, of course, all of the things we don't have and what theories might account for that. (laughs) And all of the things that we would need to actually say this 100 percent happened or this didn't. So it's possible, and I think, frankly, it's probable that it has been 60 years and at least two people got away with murder. And they're probably not going to get got for it, you know? No, my stomach hurts. So um, this was the Murders That Starved Rock. I hope that you enjoyed this trip back to my hometown because it made my stomach hurt, too. Um, Good. We would like you guys to let us know what you think. Yes. What do you think happened? What's your take on it? Um, I need to know. I'm like obsessed with this. We, I need to know. We need to know. We need you to email us. This isn't optional. No, um, this is homework. We're so. going to need you to write that email. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you wanted to like DM us about it or hey, uh, if you wanted to look at the poll or the Q&A at the bottom of this episode in Spotify, you could look at our Instagram if you wanted to do it there at about time for true crime pod with periods in between every word. That is A B O U T period T I M E period F O R period T R U E period C R I M E period P O D because podcast was too long. But if like podcast, you want to send us something too long, do it to our email. Tell us everything that you think about this and also what you think happened, and let's figure the shit out. We have the internet and each other. Why not? Also, feel free to send us your pod pets, which oh my we gosh, yeah. love oh so very much. We would like to do another pod pest. Po- podcast <laughs> no don't show us your pod pests i'm done with the cockroaches i don't want to see them we would like to do another pod pet post soon yes and we need your pod pet to join us they're part of the fam so you could certainly do that and on our instagram page you know you can always see the pod pets the reprieves mm-hmm. the all that good good the resources everything now what you can mm-hmm. also do when you email yes. us is send us all of that yeah, yeah, yeah. and what you think about the case but also Send us some case recommendations. What yeah. do you want to hear? Answer my question from the beginning. Do you like series? Do you prefer to just go back and listen to a series when it all comes out? Do you like to listen to it and have the suspense build? Because, you know, we like leaving it on a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you like a one-off episode? What are you thinking of the CJ Shorts? What would you like to hear in a CJ Short? Tell us everything. We just want to know. Also, um, girly pops, gender neutral, of course. Please let us know how you're feeling about the new lengths because I know that before we were pretty much going from 45 minutes to like an hour 15 max and now we're sitting pretty around an hour and a half two hours most of the time. To me that's my like my personal as a true crime podcast listener. Yeah. Those are my favorite. If it's anything less than like 45 minutes. Yeah. Same. 
I need to know it all. It doesn't hit enough. I just need to enough. know the details. I, yeah, I need to know everything. And I want to laugh with you guys, too, because if there's not levity, I'm just going to cry. Yep. And I don't want it to end where it's like, well, that sucked. And goodbye. Yep. <laughs> so I I think it's been great. I think it's a good time to be in the Internet era and able to look stuff up. But I need to know how you guys feel about this, because I'm sure we could condense if we needed to. But something like this. Oh, this needed two hours, baby. <laughs> like It did. And if you wanted to let us know yes, all of those things, you could take a peek at the show notes. But if you like just hearing my voice, then I'll tell you about it. So oh, do it. You could email us at about time, the number four TC at gmail.com. So that's A-B-O-U-T-T-I-M-E numeric four TC at gmail.com. We cannot wait to hear from you. We would love to hear from you. We'd also love for you to... Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, download, leave a rating, five stars. I'm, I'm uh, just please. saying. Um, I, we did get a few donations from our one-year post. Thank you all so much. It literally makes our life. It's so gonna. Be, we can actually sign up for newspapers.com and get all the old newspapers. I know. <laughs> My goal, I told Allie this like when we first started, was if we ever monetized to the point where we had consistent coming in, I wanted to get a New York Times subscription and I wanted to donate to Wikipedia because yep. I fucking live on Wikipedia. Yes, it's, a, it's such a good place to start. It is. It's an awful place to stop, but it's an amazing start. You can't stop there. No way. But we would love for you guys to hang out with us next week, too. Yes. We cannot wait to see you there. If you miss us so much in the meantime, you can go to our Instagram, check it all out, look at our little memes, check out all of our fun little posts, including um, shameless self-plug. If you wanted to listen to the CJ short on stalking and see a photo of baby Abby and baby Sean Abel Dabbleson, like (laughs) it's super cute. My eyebrows are super bad. It'll be a good time for all of us. And if you want to see what our shoes looked like when they were when we were kids you can definitely take a peek at that that's all i'm saying but we love you all so much if i do look at my watch that was about time for true crime bye Bye.